Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. How often do you think about the experiences you had growing up and their impact on you in adulthood? My guest today, Where We Live, is Melissa Phoebos, author of the best-selling memoir, Girlhood. Phoebos writes candidly about what happened to her starting at age 11 after her body started to change and how a mix of feelings at that time and certain events impacted the way she would view herself years later. Reading Girlhood brought back some of my own childhood memories and the messages girls absorb, the way we're taught to think about ourselves through the perceptions of others. How do these experiences impact our early understanding of consent and later intimate relationships as adults? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at Where We Live. I should say our conversation may include themes not suitable for younger listeners. Melissa Phoebos joins us on Zoom. She's also the author of Whip Smart and her new book, Body Work, comes out in March. Melissa, a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. Uh, I had mentioned to you before the show, you know, reading Girlhood brought back a lot of memories, a lot of emotions, and I, I guess I should start with asking you uh, when it came time to write this book, what inspired you to write about your life in this way? Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for that question. You know, the answer is that I never actually intended to write this book. And if you had come to me, you know, five or six years ago when I started it and told me I was going to write a book about the hardest parts of my own adolescence, I would have said, absolutely not. I will do anything but write that book. (laughs) Um, But my process is one of sort of following the most sort of urgent curiosities and questions in me. And I often don't know where they will lead. And so, you know, I just start picking at an idea. And with the beginning of this book, it was about an episode of bullying that I experienced really early in my adolescence and really sort of about which I had told myself a story ever after that it wasn't really bullying and I'd never really been bullied. And I had a pretty easy adolescence. I just, um, was extra sensitive or acted out especially strongly to um, not very much provocation. Um, And once I started sort of picking at that topic, it just opened up sort of this, this cavernous trove of much truer stories about what my adolescence had been like. And I followed that to another subject and my early sexual experiences um, and, you know, once you get about 100 pages in, you have to confront the fact that you're writing a book. <laughs> mm. So that's sort of how it happened for me. So it sounds like it just poured out of you. You mentioned uh, the bullying. Uh, let's talk about that uh, for listeners who um, haven't read your book um, about, you know, what happened to you uh, starting at age 11 as your body started to change and how your, your, your next door neighbor, a boy, how he responded to you. 
Mm -hmm. So this was the slightly older neighbor who I had a kind of crush on in the way that really young adolescents do, where I didn't really know what that meant. I just liked him. Um, and uh, at this point, you know, my my body had started developing really early. So I had this sort of, you know, the body of an adult and was very much still a kid. And this neighbor started, you know, first challenging me to like, arm wrestling tournaments, which was ridiculous because he was twice as big as me. Um, and over the course of a period of weeks, he started spitting on me every day and sort of chasing me around the bus stop. And the way that I responded to this um, was that I didn't tell anyone, which I now know was pretty common for bully kids. And I, and I fought back and I sort of already began telling myself a story that we were playing and that it was just um, that it was equal and, you know, I was so resistant to the idea that I was being victimized in any way. And, you know, the the essay that became this book really started when I found my childhood journal from that age, from like 10, 11, 12. And I read my own account of those events and I could see my, the young me rewriting the story of what happened because I had those memories. I knew how terrifying and devastating it had felt. And in my journal, I wrote, oh, today, Alex and I played at the bus stop and it was so fun and it wasn't fun, you know? And I was sort of amazed at my own survival mechanisms and also really curious about how that sort of revision of my own emotional experience had played out in, my, in the years that followed. You write later on in girlhood how, you know, from a young age, uh, so many girls were taught to accommodate men and their mm -hmm. uncomfortable urges. And so in, mm -hmm. in some ways, how uh, you thought about what happened to you and wrote about it, but years later, rem remembering what it felt like when he treated mm -hmm. you that way. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you were in adolescence, we think about, oh, I guess he lets, must like me, but it still right. upset you, uh, but you didn't feel like mm -hmm. you could talk about it. Right. And I think that that is sort of at the core of so many of the dynamics that I that I wanted to write about in girlhood and that I sort of unearthed in, in my own experience, because that's a really common thing. Right. And the discourse around it has changed a little bit. We, you know, some people are more careful now about saying, oh, don't worry about that. It just means that he likes you. But still, you know, what a message. Right. This person is antagonizing you, but that's a good thing. You should be glad. You should be grateful. You know, and that was not a messaging that that my parents sent to me, but it was just in the air. Right. And then, you know, very shortly after sort of that time in my life, I started ha getting kind of overtures from boys and, and much older men um, for sexual experiences. And, and I went into those experiences with this kind of idea like, oh, even if it doesn't feel good. I should be glad. This is a kind of attention I should be courting and overriding the way I actually feel inside my body, right? Mm -hmm. um, how confusing. It was so confusing for me and really sort of set me on a path that took a lot of slow work to undo. It's really kind of a lifelong project. Mm -hmm. yeah, picking up on that, you know, how girls are, are forced to kind of manage or control how other people respond to you mm -hmm. and the way you were changing. You were one of the first among your peers uh, as your, your body started to mature. And, and how did girls respond to you? 
Well, we all, this is another sort of experience that I think we have some like ambient, you know, social understanding of sort of how girls can be sort of the worst bullies policing other girls and their bodies. And um, that was definitely a big part of my experience, you know, um, I, as I said, I developed like 10, 11 years old, um, and was immediately perceived as being overly sexual, as being very sexual, as being, um, someone who was sort of intentionally drawing that kind of attention to herself. And that resulted in pretty intense sexual harassment for my middle school experience. You know, now I'll look at my friend's kids are around that age, right? Um, and they're so little, like 11, 12 years old. I was going to school and, um, you know, people would make rude gestures. And then, you know, on the weekends, I would be in these difficult situations that I didn't know how to navigate sexually that, you know, I had been conditioned to sort of say yes and be agreeable to. And then I would go to school on Monday morning and be sort of terrorized. And and my response to this, again, was to hide it, to not tell anyone, um, because what I didn't know is how common those experiences are, right? And I think that this is very much the experience of lots of girls, you know, developing early as an adult writing this book, I read all of these, you know, academic studies. And it's almost a guarantee that if a girl develops sexually early, that she'll be um, bullied in this way, or even if she appears different from her peers, in any kind of obvious visible way, right. But at the time, I had no proof of that. I had very little life experience and I really thought it might just be me, that there was something about me that encouraged people to treat me this way. And it was best to hide it and to just sort of grit my teeth and get through it. You're hearing Melissa Fibos here on Where We Live, author of Girlhood. We're talking about that memoir today, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Uh, if you want to join our conversation, 888-720-9677. Uh, coming up, we're going to be talking about consent, uh, how we learn about consent early on and how it impacts uh, our relationships uh, later in our life. Uh, Melissa, you know, reading this book again, I, I mentioned this brought up so many memories. Adolescence is hard. And when we think about uh, when our bodies change, especially for girls going through puberty, uh, what, how have readers responded uh, to how candid you have been about uh, this time in your life? It's been so powerful, Lucy. And, you know, this isn't, I wrote two memoirs before this, so I, I had some experience, but this material was so vulnerable. And, you know, you write a book alone for years <laughs> before people you've never met end up reading it. And so I had this long, intimate process of, of writing it and interviewing people whose stories ended up in the book. And um, and then when it was published, I, I've gotten so many emails and messages on every platform of social media. And, you know, even through the process of writing it, you know, as I said, I really came to this, this really profound understanding of how, how much company I have and had in these experiences that I didn't know about, but it, but it was so different actually hearing from people, you know, saying I had the exact same experience. I felt just as alone. I also thought it was me, you know, um, and that there's nothing more 
healing or curative for me than sort of having that company and knowing that I'm offering that company with my work to other people. Like that is really when I'm writing, I'm almost always thinking of that younger version of myself and, and what kind of company or sort of testimony from someone else who had the same experience would be helpful to her. Right. And so it's, it's incredibly gratifying. And it's interesting because I actually hear as often from parents as I do from, you know, adult children who had the experiences I have. Um, and, and what, and what I hear from them is like, thank you for the hope that my kid is going to be okay. And also like, what do I do in this situation? <laughs> like, how do I help them navigate this? How do I protect them? You know, you mentioned curative, uh, curative, uh, and you have said that writing this book has reclaimed, helped you reclaim your own body and helping women mm -hmm. think about their own lived experiences. I wanted to quote from your book. Uh, you write, a girl can experience or reinforce harmful symptomatic consequences as a result of a sexual experience without having been victimized by her partner, without the experience mm -hmm. qualifying as a trauma. And so you talk about how this trauma isn't just about rape or sexual assault. It can be deeper than that. It can be manipulation and passive consent. Can you talk mm -hmm. about that with us? Absolutely. Yeah. Th this is one of the, one of the issues that, that makes it so hard to examine our own experience because we don't have the language. We don't have a shared language for talking about so many of the experiences that shape us and that inform our later sexual experiences. So, you know, I've never been assaulted by any of the definitions that were familiar to me, by any of the definitions that we have, right? Which is really fortunate and wonderful, right? But we have this definition of sort of trauma, like big T trauma, I think of it. And that includes being violently assaulted um, and, and even, you know, what was called date rape. I don't know if we're still using that term, but um, that was folded in over the course of my lifetime. But we still don't have names for the other sexual experiences to which we consent, but don't want, right? That that dynamic I first sort of learned very, very early that followed me through all of my sexual life, you know, until um, deep into adulthood where I was agreeing to physical experiences, intimate experiences that I felt ambivalent about or actively didn't want, right? And what happens when, when I subjected my body to experiences I didn't want, I learned to detach from my body, right? I learned to, to not feel things I didn't want to feel, which is really um, similar to how people who experience assault um, survive those experiences, right? But there are treatments and ways we have of talking about assault, but those other experience, that's just sex, right? Those are just sexual experiences. And there's even kind of a cliched um, understanding of it, like, oh, right, you just sort of have to withstand some kinds of sexual experiences and just wait for it to be over, which, you know, we take for granted. But when I was writing this book, I started looking at those those framings of sexual experiences. And I was horrified and heartbroken, right? Um, and as soon as I started sort of naming this, and this was when sort of I had written about my experience and 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 looking at it really made me want to talk to other women who had had similar experiences. And it's really, you know, cumbersome to say sexual experiences to which you affirmatively consented but actively didn't want. It's a mouthful, right? So I started calling it empty consent. 
And as soon as I started saying that, the women I was talking to responded so intensely and confirmed for me that their whole sexual lives were also marked by this. And in most cases, they had never talked about it, right? So we had these, you know, women I'll never talk to again, probably, but with whom I had these incredibly intimate conversations where we were sort of sharing these experiences and naming them for the first time, right? Which was a huge part of that curative process for me. And I think, I feel pretty confident saying that that it was the beginning of something for them as well. Can you talk about the mixed messaging that you receive, that many girls and women receive uh, about uh, their bodies, their relationships, sexuality, uh, based mm -hmm. on the perception of others? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, really early on, we start learning to privilege other people's desires and expectations over our own comfort, right? And I think for a lot of us, um, and this, you know, transcends gender, but but I know that it happens to almost all girls, Um that you know, there are people who want to hug us or pinch our cheeks or pat us on the head even. And it's this very subtle sort of socializing to you know, grit our teeth and, and withstand touch from strangers or people that we don't want or even people that we love, right? Um, like, oh, go hug your aunt slash grandma slash this person you've never met, this adult you've never met, right? And as we get older, you know, in school, it's the girls who are nice, who are agreeable, who take care of other people, um, and the ones who say no and resist and um, aren't uh, sort of accommodating other people's expectation or desires that are that are difficult or mean. And, you know, we all know the words for, for girls and women who are like that. And so, you know, for me, it really started physically and with sort of my early sexual experiences. Um, but it but it transcends that realm, right? It's it's saying yes to taking on extra labor at work. It's saying that we will um you know, do a favor for a friend or not a friend instead of um, getting the rest that we need or taking care of our, our families or our bodies, you know. And for me, you know, it's been a big struggle to prioritize uh, writing and making my art over sort of uh, being a, a great employee or taking care of other people. And so there is this you know, I'm like closing my eyes and I have my hand on my chest because that's where I feel it. When someone wants something from me and I don't want to say yes, there is a huge surge in me of discomfort at the idea of saying no and seeing the disappointment on their face and knowing that they might not like me. And what I've learned over the course of my life is that it's easier to just say yes and make it through whatever it is that they want from me than to tolerate other people's disappointment, right? And that is a dynamic that that governs the lives of so many people in ways, you know, really uh, massive to, to the absolutely granular. So for me, writing this book is a way of really sort of asking myself and trying to offer an example of ways to reverse and counter that conditioning and to learn to prioritize my own comfort, my own desires, um, and to really sort of reclaim what, what yes means and what touch means. Mm. 
for listeners, how often have you said yes when you really mean no? And you thought about uh, all of the reasons why uh, we tend uh, to consent to something uh, when it doesn't feel right. Uh, just just one of, of many uh, topics that Melissa Fibos's book, Girlhood, uh, covers. And we're going to continue talking with her after the break. She says writing this book allowed her to reclaim her body. And she hopes the book has allowed women to think about their own lived experiences, how it shapes them and their future relationships. More with Melissa after the break. You can join us too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, this note, our conversation today may not be suitable for younger listeners. My guest is author Melissa Phoebos, who's written several books, including the one we're focusing on today, Girlhood. Through personal essays, Phoebos explains how girls and women, their feelings of self, are so often shaped by others. She writes, quote, it is the power we give to others starting in adolescence. And retraining your mind to act on your beliefs, not someone else's beliefs, can be done, but it cannot be done alone. Have you thought about your lived experiences starting when you were young, how they shaped you and your relationships today? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Melissa, we talked earlier about consent and uh, empty consent. In girlhood, uh, when you're an adult, you started going to a few cuddle parties. Can you describe that for our listeners and what you took away from it? Yeah, I absolutely can. Um, so, you know, this is back in 2017. A friend sent me a text to a an event listing for something called a cuddle party and said, this looks like something you'd be interested in. Ha ha ha. Um, and when I read the description of the cuddle party, which is basically sounded like an orgy, but just cuddling, you know, not a not a sexual event. Um just a cuddling event, I felt a really deep full body cringe. And um, 
And then because I'm, this tells you something about me, I thought, oh, I should probably go to this. <laughs> because when I have that strong of a response to something, it's sort of like a metal detector. Like I know there's something buried there that probably needs to be dug up. And as much as I dread it, I'm also really curious about it. Um, and it'll probably be good for me. So I went and I brought um, my my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, Um and the cuddle party, I mean, these are really amazing events. It basically, they happen all over the country. It started in San Francisco. This one was in Manhattan. And the first half of the event is basically a workshop in consent, um, real consent, like enthusiastic, ongoing, affirmative consent. So the the facilitator of the cuddle parties led us through these exercises where we would turn to the person next to us and one of us would say, would you like to cuddle with me? And the other person was instructed by the facilitator to say no. And then the original asker would say, thank you for taking care of yourself. Um, and this was both sort of extremely cringy and absolutely radical, right? And even in the role play, when a total stranger standing next to me said, would you like to cuddle with me? And I said, no, that, that surge I described earlier of like, oh no, I can't say no, I should say yes, um, rose up in me, which is exactly why this role play existed, right? And then um, to hear the other person say, thank you for taking care of yourself. It was like all of the hair on my on my body was standing up. It was, it felt really intense. Um, and so we did a bunch of exercises like that. Um, and then it was the cuddle portion of the party and we're in this big room with blankets and pillows and mattresses and good lighting. And there's like snacks in the little kitchen area. It's a very cozy atmosphere and people start crawling around and asking to cuddle and cuddling and there's music playing and, you know, I cuddled with a few people and after the, you know, it's like two hours we left and my girlfriend was like, wow, that was really great. I had such a good time. And at the time she had been, we were long distance and she was living in a remote place where she didn't get very many hugs. And so she really sort of needed the oxytocin infusion of physical touch. And, and she said, how was it for you, Melissa? And I said, it was horrible. I feel disgusting. And we were both like, oh, whoa, like, why is that? Um, and that sent me on this kind of journey for the next two years of, of investigating like why I felt that way. And, th and the simplest answer is that even though we did this workshop and these exercises and the whole atmosphere was one of encouraging people to say no if they didn't really want that kind of touch i still consented to cuddle with total strangers that i absolutely didn't want to like i didn't want to cuddle with anyone at the cuddle party and i did anyway and i was left with this question of why as this you know woman in her mid-30s a lifelong feminist, uh, someone who'd been to therapy for decades, like what happened, you know? Um, and, and, you know, I was in the process of writing girlhood. I didn't quite know it yet at the time, but I really spent a long time sort of looking back at my history, at the kind of experiences that you and I have talked about on the show. Um, 
And, and it actually made sense. Like the timeline of all those years of saying yes, when I wanted to say no, had trained these instincts into me where it wasn't even a thought process. I just said yes. You know, I'm articulating that surge and that ambivalence to you. But in the moment, I'm not thinking of it. It just happens. And I say yes. And I do the thing and feel terrible afterwards and don't really understand why. And after two years of really thinking about this and writing and looking back at my history and sort of getting more honest with myself about my adolescence. I went back to a second cuddle party at my wife's suggestion. Um, and I said, no, and I practiced and I sort of re redid the experience. Um, and it really changed things for me, really changed even the small social interactions that I have a bump into someone, an acquaintance in the street, and they sort of you know, open their arms for a hug. And I know now how to slow down and turn inward and really ask, like, do I want to do this? And the answer is often no. And now I know how to tolerate that awkwardness of the other person being like, oh, we're not going to hug. Okay. And then we move on and it's fine, you know, and, and it's been truly revolutionary in my life. Oh, because you started to listen to yourself, Melissa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really, the difference is about this communication. And something I, I, I arrive at at the book is that true consent is not about the interaction with the other person. First, it's about a conversation that I have with myself, right? We are trained to be so outwardly focused. What does this person think about me? How are they going to react? How do I get them to like me? How do I be agreeable so I'm safe in the world? You know, and as an adult who who is has has the power to sort of have agency in my interactions now, I'm not an adolescent anymore, I can really slow down and take the time, let the moment become a little awkward and turn inward and really sort of ask myself, am I comfortable with this? Do I want this? Um, and, you know, it's been shocking actually how clear the answer. It's like a yell sometimes, <laughs> like, no. You know, that second time I went back to the cuddle party and I stopped and thought every time someone asked, like, do you want to cuddle? Even do you want to hold hands? I would turn inward and the answer would be a resounding no, right? And when I invited my body to really communicate what I wanted, the answer was so clear. It was like retroactively clear, you know, for all those years that I wasn't listening. For people raising children uh, now, uh, you know, I mean, my hope as a parent is that um, that my children won't have to wait until their 30s to get that realization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that is probably the most common question that I've gotten from readers is sort of, you know, uh, people who have these experiences in adolescence or parents who have kids in adolescence or, you know, people who are both asking, like, what do I do, you know? And I think it's it's really, you know, for me, uh, it would have been a question of a different kind of conversation, you know, one that no one that I know of was having, you know, in the early 90s <laughs> when I was right. an adolescent. There was just no language for it. Like, Same. you know... <laughs> Not only how do you say no when something feels bad, but like, how do you 
listen to your own desires? Like, how do you recognize what you want, right? And how do you have the sort of confidence and integrity to learn to tolerate other people's like disgruntlement when you say no? Like we, there was no conversation about those kind of micro adjustments and reactions. It was just like, um, say no, respect your body. But like, how do you respect your body when there's so much a bombardment of messaging saying you should want to be desired, like being desired and other people wanting to touch you as the goal, right? And this, you know, very familiar, but very active kind of double bind of like, say yes, court desire, but also don't be perceived as mm -hmm promiscuous or sexual or accommodating in that way, like threading this impossible needle, you know? I wanted to fit in a listener call. Stacy's calling in from Middletown. Stacy, what did you want to share? Um, hi, guys. <laughs> um, just a few years ago, um, when I was in my mid-20s, I saw a friend of high school, from my high school's, you know, young child who I hadn't seen for several years who was a girl for the first time and I did the thing you do you know I got down on her level and opened my arms and I was so excited to give her a hug and then she didn't remember me so she hid behind her arm her leg like I used to with my mom when I was little when I didn't remember one of her friends mm -hmm. and I looked up at, <laughs> at my friend Caitlin and I was like she's gonna do the thing my mom did where she pushes me over and makes me hug and instead she did the most powerful thing I've ever heard in my life and she said she gets to make the choices with her body, <laughs> with who she touches and what she does. And no one had ever done that for me. Mm -hmm. And it was so moving mm -hmm. and amazing. And I just wonder, and I hope that this next generation, I hope that they know how to use their voices and listen to themselves, you know? Oh, thank, you thank you so Stacey. much. That is so powerful. Um, yeah, tears just like <laughs> flew out of my eyes as you were talking um, because it is so simple, right? Like it's so, it's so complicated in the sense or so hard in the sense that I think as parents, like women have to be able to access that themselves, to have that pause, to think like, oh no, it's okay for this friend of mine to stand with their arms open and and then stand back up and not hug this kid, right? So, so powerful. I, I also wonder what it would have been like, you know, if if I hadn't had all of that encouragement to to just hand myself over all the time, right? Like, what would touch have meant if I only did it when I really wanted to? You know, like, how would that have changed every relationship that followed? You write in girlhood at school, they told us to say no to so many things, but never how. And that fits right here, uh, Melissa, mm -hmm. about uh, learning uh, to follow uh, what your voice is telling you inside and to follow the cues uh, that your body is telling you. Um, again, mm -hmm. Melissa Phoebos is author of Girlhood. Uh, we're talking about that today. And uh, coming up on the show, uh, we're going to talk about how parents and educators should consider uh, what they should consider when teaching about consent. And how do you talk to your kids about early sexual experiences? Um, Melissa's going to stay with us. We're going to take a short break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking to author Melissa Fibos about her book, Girlhood. Now, what should parents and educators consider when teaching kids about consent? And how do you talk to kids about early sexual experiences? Jim tweeted, as the dad of a four-year-old daughter, this is such an important conversation. I wanted to bring into our conversation now on Zoom, Kelsey Alexander, training and prevention coordinator at the Connecticut Alliance to End Sexual Violence. Kelsey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. You're going to give us some guidance on these conversations that we should be having with children. But I wanted you to first respond to what we've been talking about with Melissa Phoebos, including how she described empty consent. Yeah, there's so much about what Melissa said that I I can imagine why it's resonating with so many listeners and readers of her book. Um, And I think this is unfortunately still a really common experience for young people who are growing up right now. And there is certainly a gendered lens to it, as Melissa spoke about. Um, I think this idea of empty consent or, you know, young people, maybe particularly young girls and women, um, not feeling comfortable saying no or not feeling that they are really in charge of what happens with their body. Um, I think that's still happening to a lot of young people right now. Um, and certainly as we heard uh, from the, the listener who called in with uh, this example of a parent really supporting her daughter to practice active consent and to be in charge of what happens to her body, certainly it sounds like some things are changing. Um, and I would love to see more parents doing things like that and more adults supporting young people and in, in being in charge of, of who touches them and how. When we think about how we uh, talk about consent with our children, allowing children again to, to make the choices about, you know, whether they should hug somebody, but also how do we bring into this conversation, Kelsey, the importance of healthy relationships, uh, especially as children go through adolescence, there's so many emotions and feelings and, and to not let people's perceptions of others impact their self. Yeah, and these are conversations that certainly parents can be having, but um, really I want to call all adults who have any sort of relationship with a young person or um, work with a young person or supervise a young person in any capacity, like if we're going to end sexual violence and teen dating violence, we actually need all adults to be doing this, right? And so that means um, you mentioned some of these like social emotional skills that young people need. So being able to identify their own feelings. Um, I know there's plenty of teachers doing this in their own classrooms and lots of parents working with kids to really be able to express what's going on for them. What are they feeling in their body? What emotion are they having? And when they're dealing with a challenging emotion, what's a healthy way of expressing that, right? Um, Because we all need healthy conflict skills and ways to handle conflict productively. Um, That's a protective factor to reduce violence in our communities. Um, and adults have to model these same skills, right? So, um, if a, if a young person witnesses an adult who is important to them engaging in conflict in an unhealthy way, you know, yelling at someone or making fun of someone, then that child's getting the message that it's okay to treat people that way. Right. So it's also on us as adults to think about how we're handling our own conflict. And when we screw up, because we will having a conversation with, you know, our, our kids or whoever might have been around for that and saying, you know, I, I really shouldn't have yelled. I got angry. I wish I had handled it differently. Here's what I'm going to do better next time. 
I wanted to take a, another call right now, Audrey from Glastonbury. Audrey, go ahead. Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for taking my call this morning. Um, I just wanted to ask this morning, because I, I actually have two boys, but I feel like um, I still, you know, want to communicate consent to them, especially because, you know, I, I feel like it's an important issue for both boys and girls. But... Um, in particular, I was wondering if you could speak to how to approach these topics with family, um, especially grandparents that um, feel entitled to physical affection and um, may have been the people who sort of didn't listen to our own, um, you know, expressions of our boundaries when we were kids. It's a great question. Kelsey, do you want to take that? Sure. I, I have uh, many people in my life who are navigating this conversation with uh, with family members, and I know that it's challenging. Um, and so I think just explaining and, and validating your your family members' feelings that, of, of course, it would be nice to, you know, I know that you love your grandkids and, and getting a hug from them would be really nice. Um, but it's really important to me that my kids know they have the right to decide if they want a hug or not. And this is something I'm really trying to a value that's really important to me and to our family. Um, it's, you know, you can talk about it as uh, for their whole lives, like this, this topic of consent is really important for their own safety. Right. And that is not necessarily what, what we're concerned about with them getting a hug from their grandparents, but that for, we think about their lives and as a whole, like this is what's, this is what they need to know, right? Um, and it certainly could be challenging. I'm hopeful that the more family members also see, uh, you know, you getting to model for, for your kids, like respecting their boundaries and um, saying to them, it's okay if you don't want to hug. Why don't we could, we could wave, we could give a high five, like providing some other options um, for them to say hello or to say goodbye that hopefully people will start to shift their opinions about it. And Kelsey, um, when we think about learning to say no and, and setting boundaries, even among family members, and, and, and how that then uh, can manifest in the relationships that you know adolescents and teenagers are having, um, and some guidance on you know how parents should talk to their children about um, the experiences they may have and the power of saying no. Sure. And this is all, um, I think it's really important that we start talking to young kids. We've heard some examples today of how we can do that, um, but also about what's happening in their friendships, right? This is certainly, we care about young people's romantic relationships and there's feels like bigger implications for consent in those relationships, but we've got to start talking about it when it comes to their friendships, right? Mm -hmm. um, how, do, how does this person make you feel? You know, I, I noticed your friend was making fun of you. How did you feel when that was happening, right? Um, validating that kids should feel safe and comfortable and able to be themselves in all of their relationships, right? Um, and certainly for, for parents, I think thinking about kids dating or being in relationships can be a little scary or can make people feel a little bit worried. Um, but trying to cultivate conversation in your family and, and being open. Like I, I care about what's going on in your relationships. Um, your, your romantic relationships, your friendships are important to me. They're valid relationships. I take them seriously. Um, tell me what's going on. Tell me how this person makes you feel when you have disagreements with your boyfriend or girlfriend or partner. 
what usually happens? How does that go? Uh, how do you guys apologize to each other when you mess up? Uh, these are all questions that, that parents or any adult who has a relationship with a young person could be asking. Uh, Melissa Phoebos is still with us. Uh, Melissa, we had talked earlier about uh, the, the cuddle parties that you experience as an adult. And I think you also made the observation in your book about when we think about how uh, even boys are socialized as a, uh, as a young age, uh, what it would have been like for your neighbor, your older neighbor when you were mm-hmm. 11, uh, who, who bullied you and made you feel terrible, right? Um, mm-hmm. What it would have been like for him to have gotten those cues, that message back then? Right. I mean, it would have been utterly transformative. And um, I'm just, I'm just sitting here nodding to everything I'm hearing Kelsey say and, and the callers say, and, you know, it's, um, when I was writing this book, I, I reviewed so many experiences I had with boys that were unpleasant for me, but it was, I never finished those writing experiences feeling like it was their fault, right? Because boys get just as much messaging as, you know, all kids are getting messaging about consent. And um, and I, I actually interviewed a lot of boys who had the same experiences that I did of sort of learning to override the truth of their own bodies. And I think a big part of it, you know, is teaching boys and everyone that what is desirable doesn't come at the cost of another person's comfort, that that's not a desirable outcome. To receive affection or touch from someone who doesn't want to give it to you has no currency in our culture, right? And in our individual lives. And that is, that's a radical shift, right? Um, That it's never about sort of conquering someone else or extracting someone or negotiating to get what you want from someone who doesn't want it. That it is um, that mutual consent and enthusiasm is the way that is the only touch that's desirable, right? And another thing I keep hearing in in what other folks are saying, right, in this conversation on the call um, is that it's not just about telling our kids what to do, but also doing that work ourselves as adults. It's almost impossible to teach them to tolerate other people's disappointment or discomfort or to say no if we don't know how to recognize it in ourselves, right? Like, I just, my heart went out to the caller who who will have to tolerate her own parents' disappointment. Like, it might just not be okay with them and she's going to have to tolerate that too. And it's, it's a work for everyone. You know, as Kelsey was saying, it's for all of adults have to be doing that work in ourselves if we want to model it to young people. We just have a a couple of minutes left. Uh, Melissa Phoebos again with us, author of Girlhood. Uh, When in the book you wrote, when you looked in the mirror uh, as a child, it was disdain. And I wanted to ask you, um, after writing this book, uh, you know, when you look in the mirror today, what do you see? Mm. Oh, um, when I look in the mirror today, I see a person who knows how to take care of me now, you know, like looking at back at the past and acknowledging my own wounds and where they come from has taught me to be a loving custodian of my own body and my own self, you know, it is, um, 
there's a lot of, there's a lot of conversation about loving yourself and, you know, we nod, but the truth of that experience is profound. It's really, really hard. And I'm so, so grateful that I found routes to it and that I've had relationships that support that work in my life. Well, your writing is beautiful and candid and something uh, that I think a lot of people would um, respond to if they pick up the book Girlhood. It's been out for a couple of years. I know, as you mentioned, uh, the response that you've got has been um, really powerful. Uh, again, uh, how people are thinking about their lived experiences and how it has shaped them as adults. Uh, Melissa Fibos has a new book coming out in March called Body Work. It was such a pleasure to hear from you, Melissa, and the idea that uh, you can um, understand truth by uh, not keeping secrets anymore, the power of the writing and looking at your past self to, to learn how to listen to yourself today. It was, it was really powerful to hear from you. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to be here. And thank you to Kelsey for your incredibly important work as well. That's Kelsey Alexander, Training and Prevention Coordinator at the Connecticut Alliance to End Sexual Violence. We'll be sure to tweet out a link uh, to their website uh, to learn about more resources. Kelsey, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our tech director is Kat Pastor. We hope you have a great weekend. <laughs>